Thank you for joining us today for the Restoration Church Podcast. This is a new series that we have where we talk about the vision and mission of restoration, and this week we're specifically talking about death groups. We hope you enjoy. We took Christmas Day off, then in order to honor our volunteers and to take a little Sabbath, we took New Year's Day off, and and then last week we got snowed in. Like, I really wanted to see you last week, but I mean... That wasn't fun for a lot of people. Weekend events got canceled. Some people got cabin fever. <laughs> um, had to go out and drive in it. Does anybody, when it fall, when the snow falls, you just have to go drive in it? Rick? Yeah, me and you, we're going four-wheeling next time. <laughs> me and Michael and Rick, we'll go out and be the idiots that somebody has to come pick up. So, um, I like the snow. We had a lot of fun. The, the unfortunate reality is, is when we woke up the next morning, it was all ice. So uh, instead of making snowmen, we made ice chunk men. You know, that was fun. Zach and Caleb trying not to fall down as they're carrying huge blocks of ice at the scraper head. It was fun. Anyway, 2016 was a good year, right? Uh, Before we get going in 2017, uh, I want to celebrate what happened in 2016, right? I want you to know that 2016 for restoration was a big year, and a lot of things happened, right? So I'm going to give you a couple of things that we can celebrate together because it's not something that... I did as a pastor or your elders did as individuals is what we did as a body of Christ. So first of all, we brought on some significant staff positions, including yours truly. Right now I'm your full-time pastor, uh, lead elder, whatever you want to call it. Uh, and we also brought on our worship leaders in 2016. So Frank and Mary joined us and, uh, and committed to being a part of restoration for the next couple of years before God leads them wherever he's going to take them. Um, we voted on and approved our bylaws. And then um, set up our elder, uh, our eldership leadership polity. We had a lot of community contacts. We went to the um, to the farmers market several weekends and met a lot of people. Some people are in here today because we con- connected with a friend or someone that you know or with you at the farmers market. So that was really cool. Uh, we had one missional community at the beginning of 2016 that was meeting and trying to figure out what a missional community was. And then by the end of 2016, we had two functioning missional communities with very focused missions, right? One that uh, was clued in on international students and one that was clued in on people who are suffering from and afflicted by poverty. This is what I'm really excited about. I think that we really need to celebrate. And that is that we have over 68% of our people engaged in discipleship ministries at Restoration Church. Now, the national average for people in a church that are engaged in discipleship ministries is 30%, 30 to 35%, or it's 67%. That means that we as a body take being disciples of Christ very seriously, and we're willing to give time and energy and effort to meet with other people and, and develop as disciples. Prior to our launch, we had 10 goals to achieve. We hit all but three, and the three that we missed were because of numbers, not because of effort. Right? So we wanted to have five to ten missional communities. We have two, but we're growing. Right? We wanted to have eight to ten depth groups. We have exactly eight depth groups that are functioning right now. And the last one was we wanted to have $3,000 per week in weekly giving as an average, and we're just shy of that. So we've done really good. We've hit a lot of our goals. We had a lot of goals, and we hit them. Not to mention, on September 11th, we successfully launched at the Blue Note Grill. Right? And that was a huge event. Right, That's something to celebrate that God did. Um, we had over 100 people here. We packed this room out. And our, our email role was at right at 35 
when we started at Five Oaks, we're now at 77 is how many people are, we have information for and that are interested in what we're doing. So we've basically doubled our group. You may not feel that every Sunday morning because a lot of people are transit and they're in and out, but we have 77 people that are interested in being a part of what we're doing. So we have a lot to be thankful for. We have a lot to celebrate, but we also have uh, the risk of becoming very complacent, right? Whenever there's success, there's, there's the, oh, great, we did it. And then you just want to take a deep breath and then get in this lull and then start to do what you always do. We, gotta, we, get, we can't get into that in 2017, right? Because guess what? The mission for Restoration Church hasn't changed, right? What is the mission? That hurts. <laughs> make disciples, right? The mission for every church, make disciples, And we have an entire city of people who are disconnected from a relationship with Christ who need to become disciples. And whose responsibility is that? The pastors. No, good. I'm glad people are shaking their heads. No, it's ours, the body of Christ. If you are a believer in Jesus, if you've been saved by grace, you are a disciple maker. We have a big mission in front of us, right? Um, What is a disciple? We probably need to ask that question before we go further because if that's our mission, we need to be on board. We need to be on the same page as what a disciple is. So... Restoration Church, we define it in four ways. A disciple is someone who pursues intimacy with Christ and the body of Christ, right? We call it intimacy with God through intimacy with each other, right? That's the first one. The second one is they live with missional purpose, right? They've accepted this mission to be on mission making disciples. They, they see Jesus as their king and their final authority, and he has sent them into their city. So they live on mission with purpose. Three, they give extravagantly. And I don't mean just your finances, I mean the grace that you received, the mercy you received, the forgiveness you've received, your money, your time, your talents. You give of yourselves extravagantly. And then lastly, they serve and love their neighbors as themselves. They live out the the greatest commandment, to love God and love their neighbor. So pursue intimacy, live on mission, give extravagantly, serve others. That's what we're shooting for. We want everyone in Durham, everyone in this city, this is our starting point. We've got a whole world out there, but we're starting in Durham. To to be characterized by those four things, to know intimacy with Christ, to live missionally, to give extravagantly, and to love one another through service. So um, we're not here just to start service projects or do worship gatherings, right? This is halftime. If you watch Snowpocalypse 2017 online or on Facebook, like this is our halftime meeting. The game is out there in the city the other six days of the week. We come here to refresh and encourage one another before we go execute the plan. But we're not, we're not about doing events or service projects. We are about making disciples, and that is a daunting task. We want everybody in this city to know the love and the life that Jesus has for them. That's what we're on mission to do. So guess what we're going to do in 2017? What are we going to focus on? Introducing people to the love and the life that Jesus has for them. No one's excluded. No one's off the table. This city is our mission. Your neighborhood is your mission. Your workplace is your mission. Your home is your mission. Right? We, we have a purpose, and as a church, we're going to help support you as you go and take that seriously. We, as a church, have to take it seriously. Right? Restoration is not a low-participation church. Right? We ask a lot of you. We want you to be in a depth group. We want you to be in a missional community. We want you to come on Sunday mornings and serve and worship with us. We, we have a lot that we ask of you because we're not low-participation. We're not a social club. We're disciples on mission for the kingdom and the glory of God. And the reality is, is that mission is daunting. It can almost be discouraging because it's slow. 
right? Because we're not about events and programs and systems, because we're about people, individual relationships with people, it's going to be slow. So if you are sitting here today, the first Sunday that we meet in 2017, and you're a little discouraged, I'll join you. I'm a little discouraged. I face that, right? But here's the reality. God is working. God is moving. We've had a lot to celebrate in 2016. We're going to have a lot to celebrate in 2017. We've got to keep our, our nose to the plow, you know, like our head to the plow. We've got to keep moving, keep sharing the gospel, keep reli- living in intentional relationships. So today what I want us to look at is one of the ways in which Jesus lived that out for us, right? How did he make disciples? What was his method? What was his pattern? How did he treat the people that were around him so that they would eventually even go give their lives for the glory of God? What did he do? What was so significant? So look with me at Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 10. Mark chapter 9, verse 2 through 10. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Parentheses, he didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they had looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising of the dead must have meant. So I'll give you a little background, a little context. We're going we're gonna to look at this theologically in Mark, and then we're going to look at it practically and how it affects us. What can we learn about making disciples through this text? So um, this... This event, the transfiguration as it's commonly called, happened after Peter's confession of who Christ was. So remember Peter, the disciple of Jesus, he said, Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And he said, you are the Messiah, you are the Son of God, right? He made this confession. And then Jesus said, okay, it's not you that know that, it's the Holy Spirit that's revealed this to you. Now, listen, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to rise three days later. And what was Peter's response? No, you're not. You ain't suffering. There ain't going to be no dying up in here. Not on my watch. I got this. Right? Peter had just confessed that Jesus was God. Right? He was Messiah, the Son of God. And then he told God what to do. Right? Right? So he had this faith moment where he confessed who Jesus was. And then six days later, according to this text, according to Mark, Jesus took him and two other disciples up to a mountain and then showed them what their faith was. Right? They, they had a faith statement, and now they had a sight statement. Right? They knew what was true. They got to see Jesus glorified. It's kind of ironic that Peter had such, such strong faith to proclaim Jesus was Messiah, then turn around and condemn him, and then have the blessing to come and see him glorified before his ascension into heaven. Like, it's, it's kind of ironic that Peter got this special moment, right? It's kind of ironic that James and John were included in it also. 
the suffering wasn't the ultimate purpose of Jesus' ministry, right? It wasn't the cross. The, the ultimately, what was going to happen in Jesus' life is he was going to be glorified. So this transfiguration was kind of like a prequel. It was a foreshadowing of what was going to happen. So he had just told the disciples some very discouraging news. He brings Peter, James, and John up to this mountain and shows them himself glorified with Elijah and Moses. And then they hear from the, the voice of God, this is my son, listen to him. How encouraging must it have been to know that, that the suffering and the death is not what we have to look forward to, right? How encouraging was it for the original, for the disciples to come back and, and hear about this after Christ died, for Peter, James, and John to say, no, 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 it's not over. He's going to be glorified. He's gonna, there's something more coming. There's something bigger coming. How encouraging for the first century church when this is passed around in the epistles and or through the gospels to hear Christ is glorified. Right, This happened before he died. It's going to happen after the, he died. Like It did happen after he died. Y'all, suffering is not the end. There's something we can look forward to, something greater. And how encouraging for it is for us today. See, Jesus was not just a character in a story. Jesus was God. And he was proclaiming his divinity in this transfiguration that he let Peter, James, and John see. He was the completion of the law. He was the promised Messiah of the prophets. So that's the theology of what Mark is trying to get across in his gospel. Jesus is God. And if you walked away today and all you got from this morning is Jesus is God, that's good. God has spoken. You've learned something. But is there more? Is there more that we can learn from this? I think it's, it, it kind of doesn't behoove us to only try to get so technical in the scripture that we know all the Greek words and we know all the Hebrew and we know all the theology that we miss the practicality of what we're observing, right? These were real men. This was a real relationship that Jesus had with three, three guys. What was he doing with these three guys on this mountain? Why did they even get to go? What was the purpose of them being up there? I mean, Jesus often, he left his disciples to go and to pray or to get away and to go refresh. He didn't have to have them there at this holy staff meeting, right? He didn't have to have them there to observe it, but he brought them with a purpose. What was that purpose? I think that purpose was to show how he was discipling them. He was preparing them for what they would face after he left. He was showing them a little more about himself. He was letting Peter get things wrong. He was showing them how the intimacy they had would endure in their suffering going forward. He was discipling them. So let's break this down a little bit and see what we can learn about how to make disciples the way Jesus did. So verse 2, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were alone, where they were there alone. Um, in Luke's gospel, in the synoptics, in Luke's gospel, it says he led them up there to pray. He came to pray. So there was purpose in why they went to the mountain. So the first thing I want us to get is our intimacy with Jesus and others starts in small numbers that pray together. Right? The intimacy that Jesus had with Peter, James, and John was expressed by bringing them somewhere and praying together. Jesus thought it was important to get away with these guys. Why these three? Why not bring the rest of the 12? Why don't you just pull these three guys aside? I'll give you a little background on Peter, James, and John. Um, Peter's original name was... Simon, nicely done. Um, and his brother's name was, huh? Nicely done, Simon and Andrew. And James and John were what? They were brothers, and all four of them were fishermen, right? We see Jesus, these are the first four guys that Jesus calls his disciples. 
He says, come on, come with me, follow me, and I'm going to make you fishermen of, fishers of men. Right? You're, you're not going to catch fish anymore. You're going you're to save souls. Watch this. This is going to be awesome. He, he had these four fishermen. They were horribly disqualified to be religious leaders. Right? Um, some would say they even flunked out of, uh, of religious studies, and that's the reason they were fishermen. Right? They, they didn't even get the chance to be a rabbi's disciple initially or to follow and go on up into that higher echelon of society. They failed somewhere in there. They didn't remember the Torah well enough or something happened and so they got sent back to daddy to learn the, the family trade and be fishermen. Horribly disqualified. But Jesus, these are the first, first four and, and Andrew kind of falls out. Right? I mean, he, he's there but he doesn't have this distinction as being the inner circle of Jesus. These three, Peter, James, and John, were the, the disciples that Jesus gave nicknames to, right? Simon became Peter, right? Petros the rock. And then James and John were called what? Sons of thunder, right? They were loud and bolsterous. They were sons of thunder, right? Zach and Caleb, sons of thunder, <laughs> right? I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to inherit that nickname from them, right? Um, they had nicknames, they had special access to what Jesus was doing in the, in the world. Not only were they the only three that had this exclusive invitation to the transfiguration, they were also the only ones that were invited when Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They had this special access to see what Christ was doing. The three were invited um, to be close enough to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane that they could see him sweating. They could hear his prayers and pleading for God to let the cup pass, if at all possible. They were the ones pulled a little closer, let in a little deeper. They were the inner circle. But access doesn't mean greatness, right? Maybe they were pulled closer because they needed a lot of attention, right? What was true about Peter? He talked a lot, and he said a lot of things that were wrong, right? I mean, he just didn't get it. I mean, he, we just heard that he had confessed that Christ was God, and then he said, no, God, you're not doing that. You're going to do what I say, right? I mean, like, he just didn't get it. He was kind of the self-proclaimed leader of the group, and, and people looked at him to, what do we do next, Peter? And, but, but he often just didn't have a clue what was going on. He wasn't smarter than everybody. James and John, what were they? They were power-hungry brothers, and they were wusses. Okay, let's be honest. They sent their mommy to talk to Jesus and try to get him a position on the right and the left hand of God the Father, right? When Jesus comes, when his kingdom comes, hey, will you put my sons on the right and the left? You know, it's like, well, go ask them yourself. Be a man. They were, hung, they were power hungry. They needed a little attention. So did they get special access because they were special people or because they weren't perfect people? And God had a perfect plan for them. He had a design for what they were going to do, how they were going to lead his church when he left. And so he needed to spend special time, needed to give them special access to who he was to prepare them to be disciples once he left. Getting a nickname, having that kind of access, I, I, I think the reason Peter, James, and John are there is because he's their friend. He's their friend. Right? Jesus has friends. He's a human being. And he liked these three. Gave them nicknames. He hung out with them. He gave them special access. He called them to see certain things. He might have been giving them that special attention. But, you know, I think they were friends. Who are your friends? Who are your coworkers? Who are the neighbors in your life that you give special access to who you are? That you show just a little bit more about, that you take off the mask with? 
that you pull off the I've got this together facade and you break down and make mistakes with or that you show a little bit more about your victories without worrying about being prideful. You know, like who are the people in your life? Who's your inner circle? Those four to six people that you pursue intimacy with on a regular basis. Maybe they're not even Christians yet. Is there a younger man or a younger woman in your life that you think God is calling you to bring into your inner circle? Someone that, that you could invest a little bit more in so that they could be amazing, kingdom-minded disciples and bring glory to the Father. There's a reason Jesus picked these three to spend more time in them, to develop them with intimacy and to show them more about himself. So what happened to these guys? Why, why, was, why were they in the inner circle? Let's look, keep looking. There he was transfigured before him. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there he appeared before them, Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Our intimacy, our intimacy with Jesus requires vulnerability. And that's a two-way street. Jesus shows these three more about himself than the other nine knew. There was a special intimacy. There was a special vulnerability there. Jesus easily could have left them and gone up and had this staff meeting. He could have met with Elijah and, and Moses. He could have said, hey, guys, this is what's going on. You know, you're going to be at the temple later. We'll talk about this. You know, like he, he could have had these little moments with, with Elijah and Moses, this glorified moment, and no one had to see it. But, and, and think about the three riskiest disciples to show them something that you want to keep to themselves. The guy who talks too much and the guys that are power hungry. The ones that might use it for their advantage to gain a little leverage. The one that just will blabber off because he thinks he knows too much, right? I mean, like, think of the three people that are the risky to reveal this to. Remember, what would it take for you to be vulnerable enough to make a disciple and not just a fan of your life? If, if, we, if we put on the facade of we've got it together, if only people see our good sides, they're not... They're not really our friends, they're our fans. Right? Your friends know where you fail. Your friends know where you fall apart. Your friends know where you succeed. That vulnerability, it really didn't cost Jesus anything. I mean, he was God, it wasn't going to change anything, you know, but like, but he showed them something to affirm their relationship, to deepen their intimacy. What kind of person would it take for you to open up yourself completely? To take off that I've got it all together mask or the I don't struggle with that sin, but I'm, I'm glad to hear you do when you really know you do struggle with that sin. Like wh who, what kind of person, what kind of relationship and intimacy with someone would it take for you to just break down and be vulnerable? What kind of person do you need in your life to open up with and share the ways you're suffering, the way you're struggling so that it's, you're, not captive, you're not held captive and enslaved to that sin, that you're not held in darkness, but to a person that you can help shed light into those areas of your life or simply a person to cry with when you're suffering because you're sick or something's going on in your family or you're hurting for another friend. Would you be willing to be honest and forthcoming in a group of 10 or 15 people? If you had 12 people that you hung out with all the time, would you be as vulnerable as you could be with three or four? Would you be willing to be vulnerable like Jesus was and like Peter will see Peter was this morning in front of everybody? It's a little harder, 
right? It's a little, there's a little more risk when you open yourself up to everybody. But if you have this, this inner circle, this group, where you, you can let them see who you really are. God has given us a pathway to peace in our suffering and in our sin and our struggles. James 5, we, we built our entire discipleship model off of James 5. And what does it say? Confess your sins to one another so that you may be healed. Like he's laid it out. You want to find healing in your life? Confess your sins to one another. But we don't follow what the word says, right? I'll hide my sin and I'll pretend that I'm okay and then I'll make my friends around me and they'll all encourage me because I'll have a bunch of fans but nobody will really know me and I'll live in the darkness and I'll be enslaved behind closed doors but then I'll put my smile on and I'll go to church and I'll go to work and I'll hang out in the living room and, but, but I don't have an inner circle that really knows who I am. Vulnerability is a two-way street. Jesus took a risk with these these three and showing them something so miraculous, something so amazing. It was a positive show. It wasn't a negative. He wasn't showing something he was lacking or like I'm talking about us, but he was showing something positive, but he took a risk because of these guys and their character. But Peter had to take a risk there and say something. You know, he always had to say something. So let's look. Verse 5, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. When I, when, this is one of the things we have to pay attention to in the text. Usually when I read it, it I, I think he was asking a question. I read it so fast, I assume what the text says. I was like, Rabbi, is it good for us to be here? Because then it says, because he was so frightened. But he didn't say, is it? He made a declarative statement. It is good for me to be here. There was pride in this. It's good. We, we are seeing your glory. It's good. I'll take care of building your tabernacle. I'll take care of building one for Moses. And I'll even get Elijah. Elijah, come on over here. I'm going to build you a tabernacle. We got this, God. It's good for us to be here. We're seeing your glory. Guess what? You told me you were going to go suffer and then be glorified. And now you're glorified and you have to suffer. I was right. I got it. You should listen to me more, God. Right? Peter had this moment of, of just pride, I think. This moment of excitement, but he also had a moment where he was speaking out of fear, right? He's speaking out of fear. Through our intimacy with Jesus, our misunderstandings can be exposed and corrected. Through our intimacy with Jesus, we can, we can mess up and not meet this just beat down judgment. We can meet a grace that says, hey, you got that wrong, but let me show you how it can be corrected. Right? Moses was there. Moses represented the law, right? He was the giver of the law. He was the freer of God's people. He had significant purpose in the Jewish tradition. Elijah was there. He was the defender of the worship of Yahweh, right? He took on the prophets of Baal. And, um, and he, he took on the kings and, and took on other prophets. And I mean, he was the defender of the worship of Yahweh. And he was the, prom- he was the, ah, the prophet promising a Messiah. And he kind of represented all the prophets. So you've got someone representing law, and you've got someone representing prophet, and you've got Jesus. They're all transfigured before them. And Peter's like, oh good, y'all are all equal. I'll make you each a tabernacle. He didn't have a clue what was happening. He was clueless. He didn't get it. He messed up. Peter got it wrong again. Among his brothers, he said something stupid. But Christ didn't condemn him. 
His misunderstanding needed to be addressed, but for Peter's good, for the mission of God, but it wasn't the end of the world that he got it wrong right there. Jesus was going to, through the intimacy and the relationship he had, he was going to correct him. Actually, God was going to do it. Let me ask you this. Are you okay with being wrong in front of other people? Are you okay with not being perfect? With confessing that you don't, you don't have the right answer? Especially when you're scared. Are you okay with getting it wrong when you're scared and saying, hey guys, listen, I'm struggling, I'm a little scared, and I need your help. I love Mark. Mark was Peter's assistant, right? He was like his scribe. He was his secretary. And he put in parentheses there. He said, hey, um, don't, don't judge him too harshly. He was really scared. He didn't know what to say. He was frightened, right? That, the, the loyalty of Mark to Peter right there. But he's like, hey, just simmer down. He was just a little... He saw Jesus' glory. I mean, Moses hid in a rock when he saw it. So, I mean, get off Peter's back, right? I mean, there was this moment where we have to realize in order for us to pursue intimacy with God and intimacy with one another, we have to confess we don't get it right all the time. We don't get it right in maybe what we understand about Scripture. We don't get it right in the way that we're loving our wives and our husbands. We don't get it right the way we're taking care of our kids. We don't get it right in business. We don't get it right in our driving habits, Moment of confession. Uh, we don't get it right in, uh, in our friendships. We say dumb things sometimes and hurt people. And typically what, what's behind that is fear, right? Are you okay with being wrong? God designed us to be in and to be ministered to through relationships with others. It's our intimacy with each other that we develop the, uh, the area the freedom to say, I'm scared, I don't know what to do, I'm probably wrong, will you help me? How, his, how was his misunderstanding corrected? How did, he got it so wrong, how was it corrected? Well, guess what? God spoke. Right? God spoke. Verse 7. Then the cloud appeared and covered them. And the voice came from the cloud, This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him! Exclamation point. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. It's in the context of our intimacy with Jesus and others that God speaks to us. He uses these, this, this relationship. Because they were present at the transfiguration, they had an opportunity to understand who Jesus really was. He was not equal to the other two. He was beyond the other two. He was not equal with Moses in the law. He was the fulfiller of the law. He was not a prophet promising another Messiah. He was the promised Messiah. It's a way in, in which God was saying, don't get caught up in the religion that you think you know. Pay attention to the God who is here with you right now. Listen to him. This is my son. He's far and above what you think you know. Listen to him. Follow him. In the context of, our, of your relationship with other Christians, are you listening for the voice of Jesus? Jesus still has something to say to us today about every aspect of our life. It's recorded in the Word, and it's present in the, each believer, right? The Holy Spirit is here. And when we are willing to be vulnerable enough to say, I'm wrong, and then we go and we look into the Word of God, and we have the experience and the maturity of people who have walked with Christ speaking into our life, we can hear the voice of God. The areas in which we're sinning, the areas where we misunderstand what to do, the areas in which we're scared or we need help, God speaks, and he speaks in the context of intimacy with Christ. 
as we study the word in intimacy with one another, as we love one another and we serve one another and we are compassionate towards one another and we forgive one another, we encourage one another. We sing songs and spiritual hymns to one another. He encourages us. He speaks to us today. God is not silent. God's disciples, Jesus' disciples need to both study the word and be in relationships with other believers. Because those are the two primary ways in which he speaks to us. As we pray and study God's word and as we, as we hear the counsel and the love of the body of Christ. So let me recap. Our intimacy with God starts with small groups that pray together, that seek the word of God, that have some, a sense of vulnerability and confession in it, that are willing to get things wrong but be corrected by the word of God. And there's one last thing. One last point that we see here, and that is, it's a little less obvious. It doesn't stand out as much. Verse 9, and they were coming down the mountain, and Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. And they kept that matter to themselves, discussing what raising from the dead meant. It's a little less obvious here, but um, our intimacy with Jesus was meant to be shared. It's not something that we selfishly hoard, Right? We're supposed to share that intimacy with others. So this account is contained in, in, all, in three, the three synoptic gospels. Right? Synoptic means seen together. They have the similar events. The timelines might be a little different, but they're seeing the same events and they're talking about it. They have very similar dialogue. It's the same as if you went to trial and someone said, hey, did you see that car accident? And three people said, yeah, yeah. But one saw it from this angle, and one saw it from this angle, and one saw it. So one saw them turning left, but the other saw them turning right. You know, like, it's different, different viewpoints of the same event. And the authors of those Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, Matthew was the apostle, right? He was the tax collector. He was the apostle. Um, he, he penned his eyewitness account the, proclaiming the kingdom of God coming, who that Christ is the king. We studied that for a year. Mark was Peter's assistant. He was his secretary. As, as Peter was in the church and he was laying out his gospel and he was sharing the, what he had witnessed, Mark transcribed it for him, wrote it down for him. That's why we have parentheses. Hey, give him a break. He was scared. And Luke was Paul's companion, a physician that went on missionary journeys with Paul, and Paul had learned from the apostles the gospels, and then Paul had communicated it to Luke, and Luke communicated it to the, to the church through the gospel. So this is, a, this is a witnessed account of what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration, but none of the three people who wrote about it were there. Why? Because Peter, James, and John had to tell somebody. Right? He said, don't talk about it yet, but when I'm resurrected, when I rise from the dead, go and tell people what you've seen. The intimacy that they experienced was not to be hoarded in their minds and in their hearts and just be, be something that puts them as super Christians above all the other ones. Well, I got to see God transfigured. I'll tell you about it sometime when you're as cool as me. No, it was that intimacy with God was supposed to be shared. In the ways that you see God moving in your life, in the ways that you see your life changed and transfigured and, and you see the glory of God in your world, the way that you know the love and the mercy of God, you're not supposed to just keep it to yourself. You're supposed to tell other people. We've been sent on this mission to make disciples, and part of that mission is confessing what we've experienced. Not just telling a story, but testifying to the truth. 
proclaiming the gospel. Jesus is God. He has changed my life. You may have contentions with the word. You may have contentions with the church. But let me tell you what he's done for me. It's an intimacy that I've experienced and I want to share it with you. Jesus told them to wait, but not to stay silent. Our mission is to multiply ourselves. And to do so, we have to share the intimacy that we have with Christ and with one another, with other people. It's part of the mission. So what, we, what we've seen here is a, is a process by which Jesus shared an intimate moment with three of his friends. Three people that he was going to send into the world. One to be cast out on an island and die in exile, one that was going to be crucified upside down, and another that was going to die a martyr's death. Right? We, we, we see these, these men who were being prepared for a bigger mission for the kingdom of God. He was making them disciples in this moment. And this is just a glimpse of the way that he was doing it. He was seeking the Father with them, praying together. He was spending intimate time with them. He was, it wasn't with the whole group. He got them away and spent time. He was vulnerable and showed who he really was and allowed them to make mistakes and, and, and help them understand by seeking God's answer, right? God's word spoke. And then he told them, go share it with people. Not right now, but once you've experienced, once you know it's true, go and share it with people. Go and testify. We, we call this at Restoration a depth group, right? What Jesus had on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John was a depth group meeting. Right? We didn't invent it. We didn't, we didn't come up with a strategy that's just mind-blowing. We just read it in the scripture and are trying to replicate it as disciples of Jesus in the city of Durham. Right? We, we saw in the way that Jesus treated his men and then the way that James told us how to treat one another in the body of Christ. And we just look at them together and say, wow, there was a plan here and it worked. You know why we know it worked? Because you're sitting here today. Because these three guys that had this, this intimacy with Christ shared it with the other nine. And those nine shared it with thousands. And those thousands shared it with thousands. And generation after generation and generation testifying of the glory of God, the beauty of God, the intimacy they have with God, sharing it with others. And then someone shared it with you. And now you're sitting here with a whole city ready for you to go and engage. In a depth group at Restoration, we, we like to keep it like Jesus kept it. Four to six people, keep it small. Opens up the opportunity for true vulnerability. Opens up the, the space for a safe place to confess sins to one another. We like to keep it small. We like to keep it same gender, right? A little more freedom to be yourself in front of your boys, in front of your lady friends. I was going to say your girls, but then it's just like people have to be sensitive. So in front of your lady friends, right? So it gives you the opportunity to... to, to, to <laughs> To enjoy intimacy with each other. We ask you to do what, P, what James 5 and what we see in the transfiguration, what happens? Pray together. Seek the will of God together by praying for one another. Don't take prayer requests and say, I'll pray for you. Pray together. Put words to your passion for one another. Say out loud how you care and are concerned for one another as you talk to God about it. When I... The most annoying things is when I say, I'll pray for you, and then I don't pray. And then like two weeks later, I see this note that says you're supposed to pray for somebody. And I'm like, oh, gosh, I did it again. 
I said, I'll pray for you, and then I didn't do it. So just take the time in your depth group meetings to pray for one another. Listen for the word of God. They went to the mountain to interact with God, according to Luke. They went to go talk to him. They went to pray, and they heard from him. Maybe not in the way they expected, but they heard from him. Right? How do we seek to hear from God? Study the scripture together. Don't, don't sit around and listen to each other's opinions. Study the scripture together. You might be reading a book or have a Bible study book or something like that, that that brings you back to the scripture. Don't just listen to the author. Get into the text. Study it together. Several years ago, my death group, that's what we did. We, we studied scripture and we talked and we did. My recent death group is we, we pray for each other. We hang out. We talk. We see what's going on in life. We might mention some text. We've got to get more serious about getting in the word of God. Little moment of confession. We have got to get more serious about that. They don't only study and pray together, they confess their sins to one another, right? We want healing to happen in this city. We want healing to happen in your life. James has said it pretty clearly. Confess your sins to one another so you may be healed. Shed light on what you're struggling with. Have a safe place to be not perfect. Confess what you're struggling with. And then if everybody's confessing, then nobody's got the perfect mask on, then it's then. It's okay, you know, you've you got dirt on everybody, so nobody should go share it about it. You know, it's like you, everybody's on equal playing field. There's only one person coming to your death group and confessing their sins, and it's like it, they're probably going to stop trusting you with what they're struggling with, just to let you know. Probably going to stop trusting you because all you're doing is hearing their problems and you're never sharing yours. But they don't just hear a confession or a, a sin struggle or a suffering. In a death group, we want you to do something about it, Right? For James, faith without works is dead. Don't just say, I'll pray for you. Walk with people in their suffering. Right? Call them up. Go to the doctor's appointment with them. In those moments where they're struggling, be available for a Skype conversation or a FaceTime. Sorry, I didn't go FaceTime first. I apologize for all our Apple fans. Right? Like, like be available to, at, in the wee hours of the morning to love your brother or love your sister if that's what it takes to help them overcome their, their struggle and their sense, their, their, their enslavement to that darkness in their life. And then finally, enjoy one another. Spend time with each other. Talk to each other. Have a great time. You're friends. Be friends in the kingdom of God. You've got a mission to do. Encourage each other. Hang out. Have a meal together. Come rake my yard and get all the pine cones out so I can cut my grass. I mean, I've got, I got plenty of projects for you to do if you want to have some, some fun time together, right? But, I mean, be friends. If we want Durham to know the love and the life of Jesus, if we want to seriously make kingdom-minded disciples in this city, if we want this city to be transformed by the love of Jesus and the gospel, then we've got to take this seriously. This pursuit of intimacy with Christ and one another, we have to take it seriously. We need to be in a depth group and we need to encourage others to do the same. See, the beauty of this is that it's not dependent, the depth groups are not dependent upon me or Lance or Becca or Michael, ministry leaders. It's not dependent upon us. You're endowed with the Holy Spirit, you have the word of God, and you are the hands and feet of Christ. You can be a depth group. You can start one or you can be in one. Another thing is they're not age dependent. It doesn't have to be just people in their 30s. 
It doesn't have to be, you have to wait until you graduate college to be in a duck group, right? And here's another thing. It's not people here dependent. It's not Restoration Church dependent. Our heart for this city is not that people will come to this building. It's that people will know intimacy with Christ. So that means that you have people in your circle who don't ever want to set foot in church that need to be loved, need to hear the gospel, need to have a place, safe place to suffer and to confess their suffering. You've got people at your workplaces, neighbors. You've got people who go to other churches that need to be in discipleship groups. Go and start a death group. Be a part of it. We've got to be kingdom-minded, not church-minded. Right? So the beauty of a death group is you can have one in your home with no one else that comes to this church. And you can pursue intimacy with Christ and intimacy with one another right there. You can have it in your office. You can, guys can go get lunch together. You ladies can go have coffee break together. You don't have to do it with people in this room. That's the beauty of a discipleship model that Christ modeled for us. So let me give you a couple of action steps. And then we'll wrap it up, okay? This is where I want you to go. One, if you think this is crazy, then I want you to just pray about it. Investigate what we're talking about, this depth group mentality. Think about it. Would having an inner circle like Jesus had, a place where you can, you can pray, you can confess sin, you can, you can suffer together, you can study scripture together, and you can enjoy one another, would that be beneficial in your life? Just pray about it. If you have questions... Let's go get coffee. I'll tell you how it's changed my life. If you're not in a depth group today, I want you to seriously get in one. Not think about it. I want you to get in a depth group. That means you don't even have to do it here, right? It doesn't, it doesn't have to be people in this room. It could be people in your, in your school or at your work or in your neighborhood. Find a group of Christians. It can be Christians and non-Christians. Find a group of people to get together and do those five things. Okay, Because your discipleship, your maturity, depends on you pursuing intimacy with Christ and one another. I will tell you, if you leave your, your discipling up to this Sunday morning, you're going to come up deficient. Because I know who preaches each week. Right? I know what I bring you. And I know what God is capable of bringing you in times of intimacy with other men and other women. You're going to miss out. So go pursue it. Third, if you, and listen, if you want to start one and you need to know how to do that, come and talk to me. I've got some resources. I've got some things I can give you. We can talk about how to do it. I would strongly advise you to go and, um, and observe one or two before you do it. Right? Go and observe what it looks like. And then go out and start a death group. Go disciple people. Go find a younger man or a couple of younger men and a couple of older men and get them together and have dinner every week and study scripture together. Do those five things, right? If you need help starting one, I'll help you start one. If you want to join one, at the, at the next steps table, we have a way for you to join one. There are eight active depth groups. There's room for you to be a part of it, right? So um, number three, if you're in a depth group, I want you to really evaluate the time you spend with one another. Are you doing those five things or are you just hanging out and having dinner? Right? Are you praying for one another actively? Are you studying scripture? Are you leaving room for confession? When someone does confess a struggle, are you intentionally pursuing them and loving them and walking with them through their suffering? And lastly, are you having fun? Are you enjoying one another? Really evaluate whether you're hitting those four things, or those five things. If you're not, focus in on it. 
You're missing out. If we leave out one, we're missing out something about our discipleship process. And then lastly, this is it. If you are in a depth group right now, are you thinking about multiplying? Here's the struggle. Jesus did this for three years with these guys, right? He spent a lot of time investing in them before he left and then sent them to multiply. That's okay with me. You can be in a depth group for three, five, you know, maybe not five. You can be in, 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 in a depth group for three or four years. I get that. But at some point, you've got to remember the last part. Our intimacy with Christ was meant to be shared. And so if you're just in a comfortable little group where you don't want to mix up the, the chemistry and you don't want to let anybody in, then you're missing the point. Because the depth group is where you multiply yourself into the city, right? You're making disciples. So there's going to come a point where it's really uncomfortable, but you need to have multiplication on your mind. You need to think, okay, the six of us have been meeting. We need to break into two groups of three and get some more ladies in here. We need to break up in, a, in, a, in two groups of two and then go find two other men to join us and start new death groups. We need, there are other people in the city that need to be discipled besides the four of us. We need to go and multiply. Think about sharing the intimacy you have with one another and with, the, and with Christ to the city. Think about multiplying. Okay. Um, next week, we're going to talk about missional communities as part of our discipleship process, a part about our impact in the city as we go forward in 2017. We're taking January and we're focusing on what do we do to accomplish our mission, right? And then February, we're going to get into a book study and we're going to get going. Um, in two weeks, we're going to have a panel discussion. It's one thing to hear the concept of a depth group. It's another thing to hear the testimonies of people whose lives are being changed by it. Okay, so we're going to have some people up here, we're going to ask them some questions and you're going to get to interact with them and we're going to have a discussion about what is it, why is a depth group so important? Why is it so important to be in these groups? So let's pray.